0: just so you know matt there's there's people listening right now that are probably getting angry or an angrier as you talk
1: <laughs> when, when you start with that idea it's never going to be where you kind of finish with it especially in games
0: when kind of it came clear internally that uh a third edition was going to get worked on can you give us an idea what some of the early goals were is there any early concepts or ideas um, that ended up getting dropped when you, um, either before you started testing or through testing? It's gonna summon its keyword models and they're gonna balance around it and everyone's gonna play nice. But there's another big change in hiring and I wanna get a sense of you know where this started and why it's still there. Not that I don't think it should be, but um, how it survived. Um, from the initial idea, and that's hiring a master. There are few things better than stepping away from the screens, unplugging and sitting around a table to do battle with your friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars brings you the latest strategies, tactics, and reviews on board games, card games, and miniature games like Malifaux. If you want useful information on the games you already play, or new insights on great games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Greg and Ray welcome you to the Third Floor and the Tabletop Talk Broadcast. Greg here on the Third Floor, and today we have a very special guest from Weird's design team, Matt Carter. Now, the newest edition of Malifaux has been announced, and it's going to be releasing here in late June. So what could be better than picking the brain of someone involved in the development, design, and testing? So, Matt, welcome to the Third Floor.
1: Hi, yeah. Thanks for having me. i uh, super excited to be here.
0: <laughs> oh, glad to have you, man. Now, for those who uh, that have not really interacted with you uh, that much Matt, can you give us a little bit of background as far as, you know, how you ended up coming to Weird, how you ended up being a game designer for Weird?
1: Uh, yeah, so um, I was very fortunate in that I've been playing games since I was a really little kid with my family. And I uh, started playing minis games when I was something like 11 or 12 Wow, And uh, going on from there, I somehow fell into, uh, in college, I went into a game design g- degree, and I don't know really how I got there. And then eventually I was like, I'm doing tabletop di- games as a degree. And I was like, what is happening? And uh, <laughs> that kind of finished up. I was like, okay, what do I do now? And uh, I'd been playing Malifo back in 1.5, really, really early too. And... uh I was contacted by one of my friends and he was like, oh, Weird's looking for another designer. I was like, cool. I mean, I have no chance in hell in doing anything like that. I haven't played the game in a while and like, uh, I'm just fresh out of college. And then it just kind of fell into my lap from there. Um, I got to know all the guys and uh, everyone seemed to really like me. So it's it's one of those (laughs) things that like, if you work at it and you you consider yourself uh, good at the kind of, the hobby and can really um, get into things. You can kind of take it from any direction. Um, I consider myself very lucky, uh, but yeah, in terms of just uh, being on the weird game
0: design team, Um, I would say it more fell into my lap than anything, but well, just so you know, Matt, there's, there's people listening right now that are probably getting angry or an angrier as you talk, (laughs) because there's a lot of people that would go, boy, how cool is that? Go to college for game design, work for a company like weird and make cool games. So good for
1: you, man. Yeah. It's definitely one of those things that, uh, when I was getting my degree, I was like, I'm not going to do anything with this, but at least I'm (laughs) enjoying my time here in college. And then, uh, kind of went from there and yeah, it's
0: been working out great. Been here for almost two years now. So that's great, dude. That's great. Now out of curiosity, um, you know, for somebody who plays a lot of games, but has never designed a game. And of course, everybody who plays a lot of games thinks they can design a game. Uh, but uh, as I think anybody who's spent any time with games over a longer period of time, understands that there's a big difference between the two. I'd be curious though, as far as getting a degree in it, like if you were to say one or two big takeaways, like what opened your eyes in college going to school for that?
1: Um, honestly, a lot of it was, uh, being able to look past every idea that you have as you kind of learn that everything is is not as good as you think it is, which is really basic advice that a lot of people will pick up. But like, um, when, when you start with that idea, it's never going to be where you kind of finish with it, especially in games. And uh, especially with Malifaux and working on a team, you kind of have to give up specific things that you're like, oh, I really, really love this. But sometimes you have to do what's best for the game, the team as a whole and be like, okay, I'm going to give up on that one minor thing to make the game better because, uh, I mean, I'm only one person. And if you're playing a game with hundreds and hundreds of people, um, it really makes a big difference. So
0: I would imagine it'd be it'd be easy to get married to something and and really kind of fall in love with it. And uh, that has got to be tough to let go.
1: Yeah, it it definitely is. But at the same time, once you do it uh, 100 times over the course of college, you're like, okay, um, I can look past any idea. And uh, once you write down essentially 500 ideas for something, um, you'll eventually get one that everyone kind of agrees on that's good, but it's never the first one.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. Well, you guys have several games um, and products out there, but I think what I want to do, Matt, is focus on Malifaux, just because we are really on the cusp of the newest release of third edition. And what I was hoping to do is kind of pull the curtain back a little bit. And for a lot of us, um, you know, the a new edition of a game is stressful, it's confusing. Uh it seems like things are just happening, but um you know this has been a part of your life for a while now. So um when kind of it came clear internally that uh a third edition was going to get worked on. Can you give us an idea what some of the early goals were um you know really even before the process started?
1: Uh yeah, absolutely. Um so I came in right at the very cusp of uh, working on third edition. Basically, I sat down and they were like, all right, we're doing this. And I was like, okay. And so we kind of went over what we really wanted to work on with second edition going into third. Um, and the big thing that kept coming up was um, thematic cruise. And mm. that has that been one of the things that's carried on um, hopefully pretty well in that um, playing a game of Malifaux, it never felt right to see something like Rasputina running with... Um, a whole bunch of fire gaming, which doesn't necessarily happen in second edition. Um, But the the idea of thematic uh, unity on a table looks really good from an outsider's perspective, as well as it feels really good to, makes you get really invested in the characters in the individual game. And that was basically the biggest core concept that we wanted to go forward with. Uh, There were a bunch of others. Um, One of the things that we really pushed for was accessibility and clarity within third edition. A lot of second edition had um, slight variations on how something was worded or mm-hmm. uh, a whole bunch of things that were very, very similar, but just slightly different. And so we wanted to rein a lot of those things in. Um, and then working on um, reinvigorating some of our older models that didn't see a lot of play or were uh, considered bad or, um, underutilized and then obviously just trying to make the game more fun in general to us it's it's a, a game so it should be fun to play in every way so
0: yeah and boy that that's cool that that was an early concept because if there's something that i have been you know screaming at the top of the hill about is i think key, the keyword system where you guys ended up to to kind of meet that goal I love it. And I'm hearing a lot of feedback here in the North Carolina meta and online that I'm not the only one. Um, even some of the guys in the UK that I talked to are really getting a kick out of it um, for all the reasons you listed. So, um, you know, hats off on that, man, because I think that you guys um, really, really did a great job there. And I would imagine from a design perspective, it's going to simplify balancing going forward. Do you think that's a reasonable assumption?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um the The whole idea of um, balancing the things based on keywords kind of has a trickle-down effect into everything that we do, um, especially when it comes to like when we want to introduce a new model. Um, it makes it a lot easier to introduce a 4 Stullstone scheme runner for um, something like uh, Pandora if she doesn't have to compete with the Terratot all the time because the Terratot right. is suddenly more expensive. Um, and Along with that it 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 is just more fun to play in and, and, and have things that look uh, as part of your crew. So the yeah, the thematic Unity just has this huge trickle down effect in to basically every decision
0: um, for the first few months of third edition. So that's you now that's that's good and it it's kind of um, what I'm hoping to see and of course you know none of us know including you um, really what this is going to look like in six months when it's you know really gotten full release and competitive play has happened I mean that's when that's when stuff you know pops up right um, but I, I think out of the gate what I'm excited about is the kind of the death of what I called the all-star cruise which was you know t- for some Some factions more than others, but you had a situation where the person would change their master, but their crew wouldn't change that much. You know, they kind of, you know, figured out the best models for the price and for the pool. And you would run the same three or four or five models, regardless of what master. And that breaks that thematic, you know, part that you've been talking about. Um, I'm really optimistic that the keyword system is going to do a good job with that. So that's cool. So that's, that's an early concept, Matt, that that you guys ran with um, and really, you know, ended up, you know, sticking. Um, I'm curious, is there any early concepts or ideas um, that ended up getting dropped when you um, either before you started testing or through testing?
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. There's tons. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's tons of things that we kind of threw out that get, put on the cutting room floor. Um, the one that I still think about that I would have loved to have done, but it just really didn't work um, ties into uh, keywords a bit more uh, with third edition. We have a lot of keyword abilities um, that tie across the models. And the original concept behind that was that the models didn't really have this ability on them. And it instead was on its own card and it was kind of linked to whatever master you chose, uh, chose so that, um, Essentially, if you're playing Keras, not everyone needs to have all of the Keras keyword abilities written on their card. But instead, all of these things are just on one single addition. Um, Interesting. Yeah. The
0: problem, so, so we, like a keyword guide, almost.
1: Yeah, almost like a keyword guide. And originally, it did a couple other things. Um, it would provide new abilities. It could um, give you bonuses. Uh, have specific effects. Um, during hiring, a whole bunch of different things. And just really, really early basic internal playtesting play um, showed that it was a little confusing and it lost a lot of the theme of the individual models. Um, and it made all of the models really, really complicated. Yeah, And so you just had a lot of things to remember. And so uh, that idea was pitched uh, a couple months in. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I could see some, you know, why it would have been attractive, though, because, you know, if you wanted to make a major shift to an entire keyword, you change one card. And, you know, suddenly it's a seismic change across multiple models. But at the same time, having to refer to two different cards for every model is kind of a, you know, a pain in the behind kiss. So that's interesting. That's interesting. Um, it, uh, huh? I'm going to have to soak, soak in that for a little while because there's things I like about it, but I definitely could see why it got uh why it got dropped. How about um, something that survived this process, but really changed a lot. So is there something you can think of that you guys talked about early that, you know, it's still, we can still see the, you know, the, the remnants of that initial idea, but it changed a good bit.
1: Uh, Yeah. There's one that the core, not necessarily function, but how it kind of uh, looks in third edition compared to when we originally started with it was actually summon upgrades. Mm. Uh, That was one of those things that was a pretty early um, design idea that we had uh, looking back at how Sandeep worked in um, second edition. We really liked that. It brought a lot of flavor to the individual models. And uh, originally there were a lot more um, restrictions on how they worked and they were going to be a bit more open. Um, but a a lot of what they are still kind of shown to be now is generally like a plentiful number, which uh, kind of restricts how many you can hire of that, that one single upgrade. And that's one of the few things that has been kind of consistent is just limiting the number of summons a model can do based on the number of upgrades they have, but how the models look, how the the upgrades look, sorry, has changed kind of dramatically. And Minor amounts of those, uh, the the flavor that we kind of lost on some of those were added in very in the, the tail end of the, the open beta just to bring a, a bit more flavor and have less blank cards. A good example of that is um, Sandeep's Shackled Elements with uh, the With Our Powers Combined ability. That was added as a way to just have less pure blank text on a card and bring a bit more flavor as well as um, bring together some of his... Um, initial designs forward and have a bit more fun with it so
0: god the fact that you can remember any of this matt off the top of your head after being buried in it blows my mind um because i have trouble just remembering the 10 models i or five or 10 models i put on the board let alone every model out there so hats off to you on that one so guys we're going to take a quick break and uh, when we get back um i want to pick matt's brain and learn a little bit more about the process of testing a new edition. Um, some of us have play tested before. Some of us have watched play testing happening. Um, I really want to get a sense of what it's like to be, um, you know, in the designer's chair uh, while the testing's happening. So we'll be right back. Howdy, folks. Craig here. Now, if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi tools a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring, along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. Okay. So now that we kind of got an idea of, you know, where, where Malifaux third edition kind of started, um, I think it was really interesting, Matt, to hear, you know, how some things evolved and how some things died, you know, but at some point, you know, uh, things get, um, outside of lofty goals and theory and you have to start testing it. And the one thing that I want to start off with is learning about internal testing. So testing that you guys did in the office, um, you know, without anybody from the outside, what does that process look like?
1: It's, it's weirdly complicated, but really easy sometimes. Um, so third edition in its very, very early alpha was just second edition with all the, all the models were basically the same. And we just kind of put atop a slightly different core rule set. And we're like, let's see how this goes. Um, so it, uh, some of the newer uh, kind of core concepts like 1AP actions and... Um, lowering down some conditions, those kind of things. We essentially took all the M2E models and just made a third edition version of them. And we're like, let's Mm -hmm. see how this goes from here. And uh, we'll kind of work through the core mechanics of the game. And then we'll really deep dive in each individual keyword. Um, And so a lot of it was kind of just going back and forth in the design room um, and talking about whether or not we liked an ability. And so like, charge as a whole um, being a one AP action um, actually came. Uh, we, we came up with the idea because we wanted to do uh, to lessen the strain of the game and make it a little bit easier by just having single actions. But charge was the, the really potent two AP action. Right. And so we are like, if we made it a one AP action, how would that game go? And so we just kind of wrote down a five minute version of just like, move and attack once and we were like okay and then i played a game uh of ulix versus i want to say shenlong and it worked great and we were like all right that's that that seems good i guess we can kind of test that out with a couple minor things and um eventually the like rush mechanic got added and uh, move values were adjusted and then there are some things that took a lot longer to change so uh, pass tokens um I I can't remember when that concept kind of, kind of came about, but it took us a lot of iterations to kind of get to where we are today. Uh, yeah. So,
0: yeah, that's a big change. The past tokens was a big change. So I can't. I, I would imagine it would take several iterations. What um what pushed uh, this is going to uh, not to make a joke, but what pushed you to make it a push? What uh, at what point did charge change from being a you know a move to a push?
1: He was actually. A really kind of basic change. We, uh, when looking at second edition games, and people were like, "I'm going to charge over a fence." Um, we, we, as a design team, we kind of look at each other. We're like, "How are they charging over fences?" This doesn't make sense to us. We we're just kind of thinking about it. We we're like, from a thematic and visual standpoint, it doesn't really make sense. From a kind of gameplay standpoint, it does. Um, and then with how charges got changed with being 1AP and allowing you to essentially walk beforehand um, we found that rather than going through the fence um, going around it seemed like a much more reasonable um, kind of adjustment Mm -hmm. So it was was a lot of uh, kind of watching people play and uh, especially with new players watching them and be like I can charge over fences I guess that makes sense and we're like that seems like a Pressure point. Let's see w- if we can push on
0: that and see where we can go. So that makes sense. That makes sense. It, um, the other part that kind of changed with charge, and by the way, I, I like where charge is now. Um, and it, that is a, a, a many, uh, a, something that I have encountered a few times already, which is I read it and go, okay, I don't know why we made this change. I don't know how it's going to feel. Like go into it a little skeptical. Two games in, I'm like, great idea. Works perfect. Feels right. So another change that happened with charge is, you know, originally you had to have a target to charge, right? So you had issues of line of sight and things like that. Now you don't, you can just charge. Um, Can, do you remember kind of how that evolved?
1: The original kind of conversation was part of that same um, looking at the table from a new player's perspective and asking them, can you charge that person? And usually the response is, well, I can't see them. So no, and then we kind of change it to where they can move around beforehand. And they were like, okay, I kind of move and then I move again and then they're right there. So can I attack them? And the answer pretty clearly to us became, it's just more, uh, it's easier for players to grasp the idea of I can attack after I charge something um, instead of charging a specific thing. It also let us do a whole bunch of different, kind of mechanical changes and see where things kind of played out. And as we tweaked things, we started to like how it worked um, better and better um, things with like uh, extended reach. I, I feel mm-hmm. like that existed in second edition. I'm not actually sure at this point, um, but it, it felt really good with the, the kind of non targeting of charge. Um, right. Th- the only thing I will say that from a design perspective is a little bit annoying is rewording some minor things like disguised and uh, extended reach and how they have to say actions generated by charge it's still a tiny pressure point that i wish we had found a way to um, better emphasize that Um, which there are ways to do it but it's making sure that gets across and is is a really uh, clear-cut thing
0: yeah i I would imagine that 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 desire for elegance must always be pushing you forward and forward but at some at some point you know if you get a little too fancy you start losing stuff right it becomes things become a little ambiguous
1: yeah absolutely um the idea of elegance was one of those things that Um, I really kind of pushed for when I came on the team and to make things that one word less, if we can get one word out of this sentence, it'll just be easier. And Mm -hmm. how, how far can we go before it starts to just read as gobbledygook? That doesn't make any sense. And uh, it was one of those things that um, with that kind of push, we came up with like the italic cost text, which let us do even more things like um, paying before you do things. Uh, so for the instance of like Leviticus taking damage before he uh, would do his extra effects, it makes it really easy for us to say, hey, you can't kill yourself by taking damage because that's a cost. And all right. of those kind of came from these basic ideas. Um, so a lot of people, when they think about game design, they don't necessarily think about all the trickle down effects that you can get from one core kind of minor change. Um, it's a really big difference with what we're thinking about compared to just the average gamer.
0: Yeah. And it, um, you know, I think to a certain degree, it's almost impossible, I would guess, to take the blinders off too, right? Where you guys have been in a room, you've been working on it, and it's it's got to be hard to look at it with fresh eyes. And sometimes that's really the only thing that's going to kind of, you know, bring stuff like that out, um, which I guess, you know, would lead you to, you know, kind of, now, did you guys have alpha testing with people outside the company?
1: Uh, yeah, we we had a round of alpha testing with um, a few select people outside of, outside of weird. Um, but occasionally we will sometimes bring in um, like one of our uh, office people or warehouse people and just be like, read this. Tell us if it looks weird, because from from the perspective of the person who sees it 500 times a day, it, yep. I'm so used to it that I can't decide about whether or not it makes any sense.
0: What was, the, what was the early feedback from the outside al- alpha testers? Um, did you get any kind of initial hot takes um, from them? Um, the early alpha testers, a lot of the, what they
1: were testing was the the core uh, mechanical changes um, with uh, newer conditions, uh, new charge rules, and that kind of thing. And it was a, a very positive experience. Um, the biggest change that we kind of had to get through with the alpha testers was we're changing how crews work. Um, in terms of like any individual crew, it might feel the same, um, but it's not going to mechanically work the exact same way. We want to we wanted to take every crew and take the thematic kind of what it's doing and um, its whole purpose in Second Edition and kind of reinvent it in a cleaner, more elegant way that also uses all these new mechanics. And getting people to be on board with we're changing how your models work yeah. uh, can be a Frustrating experience, but it's also uh, a really interesting one to to get just ideas thrown back at you and be like, "What if you do this?" And we're like, "Oh, that's a great idea. Let's write that down."
0: It um like God, that's got that's got to be hard, man. Like uh, if for for a designer, let's say let's let's go to closed beta now, and you guys are in closed beta. What 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 is the hardest part from a designer's point of view in beta testing that maybe? isn't obvious to people from the outside.
1: Um, this is going to sound weird, but it's the not obvious stuff. It's, it's when we make a change to a model that isn't directly based on that individual model's mechanics. It might be based on something way outside of that model that we saw some sort of combination that we were like, uh, that's going to break the game. So we can't do that. Right. Um, the the one that I kind of think of this was an open beta change that a lot of people still kind of question of why it's like this is um, the new misery on the woe keyword. Um, mm-hmm. They essentially that ability has the once per activation restriction on it, and I've gotten the question a lot: why is this once per activation? Um, it seems really powerful, but why specifically that? And it mostly comes from Iggy. Uh, because his interactions with the wildfire crew, he essentially created an infinite loop if it wasn't once per activation. So he would you would walk into a, f- a fire pyre and just die of burning immediately. You would immediately take uh, like burning plus a thousand and then he would walk <laughs> you out and you'd just be like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> And so that was uh, weirdly enough. That was one of those things that we implemented new misery. And then about five minutes before we hit publish, I was like, "Oh crap! I I have to fix this right now. Otherwise, That's someone's going to call me on
0: it." <laughs> That's funny. Um, I would all you know. It's it's funny you talk about you know you, you think of Iggy in in one container, but Iggy you know has feats in different containers. And really, within faction, we can still hire um, non you know non keyword. There's a tax attached to it. One of the things that we lost was was mercenaries. Um, And I didn't anticipate that happening, but I wasn't shocked when I saw it because that had to have been a huge challenge for the, you know, people trying to balance two E having people like Johanna that can go with any crew. Uh,
1: Yeah. I I feel bad for those people, to be honest. Uh, (laughs) Anyone that worked on second edition and had to balance mercenaries. um, Those are, were some of the most complicated models that we kind of had to deal with. And the idea of going into third edition and being like, all right, we got really thematic crews and uh, and new ideas going on. Let's bring in this random free core trapper from, uh, and and see how much it can break my crew. And the idea of these mercenaries that kind of show up anywhere, we were like, wow, that's cool and fun. It's really hard to balance. And that model has to be balanced against every model in the game. Oh, what a nightmare. And, yeah, this the, the kind of um, parallel thought to that was we call it the Leviticus problem in the office, was Leviticus had such a huge hiring pool that while those models didn't have to be balanced against every model in the game, Leviticus himself couldn't be too powerful or couldn't have this kind of um, unique power structure that we wanted him to have in 3rd edition because he just had access to everything. And so we kept having to kind of look at something and be like, well, is this broken with this other random model from said faction? Um, and all of these things kind of had to be weeded out. Um, and the kind of last of that that was weeded out was Zareda's enthrall ability, which kind of got cut, I want to say, the really early open beta. We were just mm-hmm. like, this, "This, we're done with this. We feel bad for all the players that have a bunch of models that are outside of their, their thing, but we have to make this change for the good of the game so that we can make more interesting models that don't have to kind of do checks and balances against every faction.
0: Yeah. The knee jerk reaction to, to putting containers around that stuff from a player perspective, um, can be a little rough, you know, cause you know, I, I bought a lot of models that I'm not going to use now, um, for, uh, out of second edition, but, um, if, if that sacrifice that I make as a player comes with a better, cleaner game, then, then I'm okay with it. Um, there, there's something that uh, – a term that we've been using here in the NC meta, um, some of the Rezzer players that I chat with, is we used to call it the Nicodem tax, which is you would look to anything undead in Rezzers, and it would always seem priced a little high for what it did, and it was because Nicodem could summon it. And you guys had to you know try to balance that, and what that ended up doing is – You know, by keeping Nicodem somewhat balanced because of his powerful summoning, you end up hurting the rest of the faction.
1: Yeah, we we actually we talk about the Nikodem tax in in office as well. Um, it's pretty clear to us that that problem kind of existed, and that was that was uh, the main reason why we stopped with the this model can can summon anything in its faction. We're just like it's going to summon its keyword models, and they're going to be balanced around it, and everyone's going to play nice. We're not going to have <laughs> we're not going to have to deal with this one model that is is so overly powered, like the hanged in Nicodem with second edition. We're just like yeah, this the hanged is, is going to be a jackdaw model. Why we have to balance it with Nicodem is crazy to us as designers. We're like these, while they're in the same faction, they're so different. Yep. Uh, well, jackdaw wasn't in a faction at the time, but um, we'll say it was a cry model. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I get what you're saying though. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it was, it was just one of those things that for the most part, things should be balanced around how they should be played. If they're, being played in an obtrusive kind of uh, oppressive way, we want to f- cut that off at the stem. Um, yep. It's it's hard to as a game designer uh, cut things off because you want things to uh, kind of flourish and and go in new directions and pay, people will find new ideas and uh, kind of develop new new metas and it'll shift over time. Um, but sometimes you you get oppressive kind of. New things, and you 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 can't have that. And so, a lot of what we were doing was trying to cut it off so that it's never going to happen. If if we want something to be balanced around being summoned, it's going to be balanced by being re- summoned by a specific person rather than any person in reserves, for example.
0: Yeah, the the initial, like I said, the initial reaction is is well, he's limiting me. But in reality, it, it, it frees you up, right? And it, and it it allows it allows you to make make real changes to things and not have to to temper that across everything. So that yeah. makes a ton of sense to me. A, a lot of the balance of it comes
1: from the, the individual models that are being summoned, for instance, because they had to be less than in order to make the other person work. And so we just right. we really wanted to highlight everything and have every model kind of have its reason for existing in the world and not be shunted to the bottom of the pack because it costs so ridiculously high because this one in t- one minor interaction.
0: Yep. Yep. That makes sense. So uh, let's kind of uh, kind of pull at your memory here a little bit, Matt. Um, can you think of maybe one or two things that really from the, from the beginning all the way here to the end, um, and we're right, like I said, right on the brink of release, what do you think changed the most? Um, you know, we've talked about things that that survived, and, uh, you know, it's your initial goal, um, you know, really made it all the way through. Um, but if you, if someone were going to say what changed the most, and specifically maybe because of the testing, so because of the open beta, um, I want to get a sense of what what the impact of open beta was. Yeah, so I have two
1: ideas uh, that immediately come to mind. Um, the first one is actually tokens. Um, we came into third edition having cut down all of our conditions, and we were basically like, all right, we're going to do a couple of tokens so that we can keep um, some thematic idea um, for things like Lynch and um, Hamlin so that they can still do the same thing they are doing, and it's not completely doing uh, this um, new kind of play style on them. Mm-hmm. originally tokens existed in uh, so many more places. And we found that as players were playing them, they often found them to just be just clutter on the board and a bit more obtrusive. And so every kind of week we would find a crew and just be like, well, that crew doesn't need tokens. So we're going to rework dreamer. For instance, he had these dream tokens really early on. And while it was a whole bunch of fun, it was kind of complicated and needlessly, uh, cluttering the board and we're like how can we have the same effect without him needing to track things and Mm -hmm. so um, while we went from originally we had 20 or so uh, base tokens in the game I, I think at this point there are two main crews that use tokens kind of in an aggressive way putting them on enemies and a couple more that use them for themselves rather than there used to be two or three per faction that would do that so dropping those down a lot was a big change that went um kind of from early testing to later testing your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy
0: chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.
1: The, the other thing was our, our upgrade system as a whole. Um, this was not necessarily a change that players noticed. It was one that they kind of didn't notice. Um, with second edition, there was uh, there were so many upgrades. And... Um, it was kind of a core functionality of the game. And then we went into third edition. We were like, upgrades are coming. They'll, they'll be here eventually. And here, here are a couple to keep you situated. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, that Masters didn't have upgrades anymore, um, it, it became almost one of those things that they were getting complicated, but in uh, the best way for us to work with. And the upgrades as we were looking at them became kind of needless or too much change to the game. Yep. And so the, the master upgrades kind of just as we worked on, we realized that they, were, they weren't bringing enough to the game. And if they were, they were either too expensive or kind of uh, too much change that it was really ob- odd and obtrusive to play with.
0: Yeah, the reality is, Matt, is an upgrade was either stapled or never taken. There wasn't a whole lot of upgrades in two that felt, were, you know, in some situations, I take this, the vast, vast majority of them, you know, it's just like, just put it on the card. Stop with the upgrade. And or, you know, why even bother printing it? Um, and even though it gave as a as a new player, it gave this sense of, you know, flexibility and stuff like that. In reality, after a little while, you didn't do it. And I was I was one of those players that said, wow, I can't believe they're not doing this. But then I just realized after playing the master, you know what? Molly feels like Molly now, and I don't have four cards, three cards kicking around to make Molly feel like Molly. And I, and you guys have talked about, you know, potentially having alternate master cards eventually. Um, so I, I like that direction. I think that ended up being a good choice.
1: Yeah. Upgrades in second edition to me always felt like a trap. Uh, yep, You are always like, Oh, I, I did this cool thing and now I'm just going to play a weaker game because of it. And so uh, <laughs> we've, we have kind of discussed it um, briefly in other places with the, the alternative masters and titles, which exists in a very minor showing people the wa- waters kind of way with like McCabe and some of the um, ancestor models. They, they have titles for various game mechanical purposes that make them way easier to write. Um, but with alternate masters uh, in the future, we would like to kind of revisit the idea of masters that play entirely differently. Because that was what would, the most fun of these upgrades was having yeah. two different play styles. Um, and we, we really do want to get that um, later on. Because that was uh, originally in M3's design document, we actually had master upgrades that were stylized. So you would have four upgrades per master. And they were in two kind of columns. Um, there was a style one and a style two. Um, mm-hmm. And then there was, uh, each style had two kind of uh, instances. And you could pick um, so both style ones of kind of each thing or go up either tree. So you could kind of have this weird design tree. And it became really fun and really cool, but really complicated. <laughs> um, and it was just a lot of cards on the table.
0: Yeah, I, I, I get... I, i'm I'm really impressed because of you know the where you guys ended up because as you know I'm a fanboy right love the game um, as somebody who's been playing miniature games for 15 20 years um, this is in my opinion the best game out there um, and I think third edition is the best version of this game um, that I've played but the one thing that was really tough is the game was intimidating for somebody who was new and I think that this and I don't. I hate the word simplification. Um, lowering the complexity, unnecessary complexity, was a great choice. And one thing that I've noticed because um, we have been growing here in the last six months in the NC Meta, um, we've almost probably got thirty percent more players now than we did a year ago, which I know is a little unique, especially for any game making it a, a, a changeover. And so I've got a, a sense of being able to see people that never played two and three is really their first game of Malifaux. And the biggest thing that I've noticed, Matt, is that when I sit across the table from a new player in 2E, I had to explain everything. So I'm bringing this model. This is what he does. And I'm bringing this model and this is what he does. And she's got this upgrade and that's what this upgrade does. What's really cool about what you guys ended up doing is I can just sit back and go, all right, so this is what this crew does. And give, you know, a two minute explanation and not even, you know, maybe I'll call out a model or two, but it gives them a, a sense of what they're facing. And I think that that was like this stealth aspect of this keyword system that, and, and, and getting rid of the upgrades, dominating the game that I didn't, would not have guessed until I actually saw it happen. Uh, I find it really funny that you call that kind of a stealth
1: system. Um, that way it, all of those things that you kind of just mentioned were very in our head, very upfront for us uh, designing the games. Um, accessibility from a new player standpoint is really important, especially when you have a game as complicated as Malifaux. Uh, yeah. Games live and die based on the idea that new players will get into them, and Second Edition got to the point that it was so complicated and every single model was was so unique that it was really hard to be like, all right, we're going to sit down and play a game. And now I have to explain Mm -hmm. 11 models to you. And all of them are so different. And um, this kind of harkens back to the thematic um, ability of just being like, Hey, Molly uses fading. It does things based on discarding cards. Basically everything else in my crew is going to make me discard cards. And now I'm going to do better and do cool things because of it. You know what I do that's that's i'm good we're, we're good yeah. and um that's one of those things that we really wanted to focus on and uh, it came in a lot of ways the and uh, some of it was just kind of bringing in models together making making crews a bit more similar and all mm-hmm. having a core function um while also some things were like renaming actions so that they were the same uh, across two models it's just less confusing um, so yeah,
0: no, I agree. And it's, it's simple, small stuff like a great sword's a great sword. Um, that that helps a lot. But we've uh, we've, we've been seeing a lot of the uh, warmer hordes uh, community uh, coming over to Malifo. Um, this is where a lot of our growth has come from, and that's the biggest feedback that we're getting. Um, from that is that they love how deep this game is, but they really love how quickly they've come up to speed on it so um that's a an early indication that um that you guys have had some good success um so we've had a lot of changes you know from two to three um i want to talk a little bit more of that on the other side of the break man i want to talk um really i think some of the major changes and just kind of get your get your thoughts around it Uh, so we'll be right back Okay. So now that we, you know, it was really interesting, Matt, to, you know, hear, um, you know, kind of that process of testing at, you know, reading the testing boards and, uh, you know, the Facebook messages that fly back and forth. Um, I, sometimes I feel like the Iron Man suit that you guys have to wear not to take things personally is impressive. So it's just kind of neat to, to, to get a feel of that um, from your side. But I do want to get a little bit specific and I want to talk about really what I consider kind of the major changes in this new edition. And if you can just kind of talk talk through some of it, you know, on the hiring aspect, um, we really, I think, have dissected keywords um, pretty well. Um, but there's another big change in hiring and I want to get a sense of, you know, where this started and why it's still there. Not that I don't think it should be, but um, how it survived um, f- from the initial idea. And that's hiring a master. So the ability to, you know, I have a leader and I can hire a master. Can you walk me through how that started and um, where it came from? Yeah, I'm I'm glad you started with the hard question first. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so
1: hiring a second master came from... Uh, a design meeting with a couple of us, specifically Kyle was there. And we were kind of talking about how how can we introduce some more fun elements to Malifaux that will kind of get people excited about uh, the third edition and bring new things that we haven't seen before. And the idea of throwing up a second master um, or multi-masters into a crew was one of those that came up. We all kind of looked at each other and we we're like, that sounds like a lot of fun, horribly broken, but a lot of fun. And so we kind of put it on a back burner. And then as, as we were thinking about it the next couple of days, we are like, we're designing a new edition. We can kind of change up anything we want. Let's see if we can make this not broken in any way. And so mm-hmm. we kind of started with uh, give them a cost, start them at some reasonable number. I think the number we started with was 12, and we found really quickly that number was too low. <laughs> um, and so we, we bumped them up to 15, and that seemed to go pretty well. But we still ran into the problems of there were some things that were so unique that masters could do that were just caused huge ripple effects if they were running with a secondary master. And this is where the idea of like leader only abilities kind of came into play. And it let us really kind of tweak and balance individual masters so that not only can you play them in secondary crews, they'll stu- still do well, but they're, they're obviously going to have a difference when they play their own. In in terms of balancing them, um, they kind of fall into different categories. The easiest ones to balance are the ones that rely on their crew a lot to work. Those ones, generally, you're not going to necessarily want to take them as a secondary master. And so it's a lot more of you can if you want to. um, They're fun, pretty interesting to kind of play with. And then there are um, the masters that kind of work a lot more on their own. Um, so Seamus, Lady Justice, those ones, those are the masters that we kind of had to look at and be like, how do we make these so that if a player wanted to play them, they would not be oppressive in the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was a lot of work on our part. Um, and I feel like we we have a pretty good balance on them. Um, some of them, like Lady Justice, it's just increasing her point cost a little bit. Uh, yep. Lady Justice brings so much to a crew. And if she costs 17, it's a really big investment. But is it really going to be 17 stone investment? Um, and so different kind of masters fell into these different places. Um, so one of the things we wanted to work with on, uh, on these masters is as they're kind of either too weak or fluffy or too powerful, as we kind of balance them together, um, we really wanted to get to the point that if you want to take a second master, it can be a competitive choice, but it's never going to be the kind of optimal choice. Um, So we were really working with, if you can get 50 stones in a list, how much, how much effect is a new master going to have um, when he's kind of out of place Uh, so that it's, it's, it's always like, I'm going to do this because I want to have fun. Uh, I'm going to have Molly and Seamus together to bring back, that time when Seamus kind of had a control over Molly and yep. we can see them play in a singular game because that to us tells a really nice story. Um, but balancing those is always the fun and interesting part. And so play testing is became really important on those individual master things. And a lot of people were like, why not just make it so you can't do that? And we basically decided, well, it's a lot of fun and we feel like we can.
0: So I got to tell you a secret. I was skeptical, man when uh, I would say the single thing that I heard when I first came, you know, when open beta, you know, came out and the first thing I looked at that I just went, this is not going to work was this aspect. And I felt like you were trying to fix a problem that didn't exist and you were overcomplicating things. I was super judgmental um, because I didn't design anything, which makes me smarter than you. Right, Matt. Yeah. (laughs) But, um, and, 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 you know, it got, a, got play here. Um, you know, we had a pretty active open beta here and I, my opinion tempered a bit because I wasn't seeing anybody dominating because of it um, bothered me a little bit that I was seeing the same masters hired and your examples of Seamus and Lady J are perfect examples where you finally got me off of my skepticism is when you had that leader only mechanic put in there. I thought that that was, an excellent excellent decision and i and i appreciate that you guys are thinking this of a you know it might be too expensive from a competitive standpoint but for a fun game it's going to be a lot of fun so i like where you guys ended up
1: yeah uh i'm very happy with it i'm excited to see um what interesting combinations uh and things we have there are some minor abilities that kind of work together um that we have uh We have some fun, really minor things in the works that you guys will see upon um, final release that uh, it's just like a minor tweak. And if you ever see these two masters together, it'll be weird, but it'll be just like this small amount of fun.
0: (laughs) That's cool. That's cool. So um, I think we talked about a good bit. We talked about you know conditions and tokens. Um, you know there's big changes made there. The consolidation of the conditions, the concept of tokens. So I don't think we need to really dig into that more. And uh, I really picked your brain on charging, but I do want to talk about the changes to wounds and damage output um, because that was pretty drastic. Um, we saw you know, the number of wounds that models had on average um, change. And we definitely saw a change in the damage output. So can you walk us through how that ended up being uh part of the game?
1: Yeah. So this is one of those that was not as intentional and as people think um, it kind of became a bit more intentional as we went on. But when we started reworking models for third edition uh, we kind of had this new balance idea in, in our mind and so, as these models got rebalanced, we we're like, okay, these models play well on the table, and they're doing things we want. And as we would hit things, they would kind of fit into that kind of balanced structure. And so, as we went along, we were like, okay, so damage is going down a little bit across the board. HP is kind of changing depending on your the cost of the model, and that. Uh, so that was one of those things we kind of went in knowing was um, these kind of core basic balance principles, and the. Damage profiles changing kind of was just a reflection of us rebalancing things. The major idea behind that um, coming from we don't want models to die in one activation and die in one hit. It feels really bad for the person playing as that uh, that character to just kind of activate and be like, okay, I'm dead. Um, what's next? And so uh, by kind of tempering those numbers just a bit, um, we saw a pretty big reduction in just flat out destruction of models in one activation granted it still exists um, in certain places um, but it exists in a specific kind of box that we can adjust and work with uh, that is there on a specific purpose so the victoria's they're they're meant to kill things
0: so. that's exactly what i was gonna thinking when you talked about it yep it there, there's a lot less feels bad in this edition because of this change um which i like um i have a an irrational hatred of the vicks uh, from 2E and I don't hate them as much in 3 um so that's that's a big deal <laughs> because I really hated them I hated I hated that they existed um because I thought that literally thought that they were bad for the game and I don't feel that way anymore I think they still are killy I think still they still do what they do um, but they just don't create that negative play experience like they used to. Um, so I, I, I like those changes, man. I think that ended up uh, doing really good things. The uh, the upgrades we've talked about. So, um, you know, really a huge change on the upgrade system. And I think we dissected that. Um, but one thing we haven't really talked about, man, is um, there's pretty big changes to how train works and the train rules. You know, things like, you know, a train having a shadow and stuff. Um, I'd be curious to know you know, where that started and, you know, what, what was the idea behind making those changes?
1: Um, yeah. So where it started was uh, vantage point was confusing. Uh, <laughs> you think it was very confusing. <laughs> Granted at this point, I couldn't explain vantage point to you, but it's been two years since I used the vantage point. Um, but it was really unintuitive and new players couldn't understand what was happening. Um, and so when we kind of worked with shadow, we were just like, how can we make this system while complex and interesting, using not necessarily true line of sight, because true line of sight is just a, a system that uh, limits our model line, which is something we're really proud of. Uh, and so we, and it also limits kind of hobbyists to working. So we were like, we can't do true line of sight. What's the kind of next thing we can do? And we kind of came up with the shadow system as a way to, uh, it, It's really easy to, once you figure out what's going on, look at a table and be like, do I have cover? Yes, I'm within three inches of this thing, and there's uh, room in the way. Um, So that was one of those those instances that um, it kind of came about of how can we make this as easy as possible to see what is happening on the table? Um, The other big changes with terrain being like concealment and concealing terrain. Um, That was one of those things that we wanted to keep around the negative attacks to modifiers but kind of lessen it because shooting in second edition was never as good as melee combat and we wanted uh like projectile based crews to to feel good and feel powerful and so if we limited that that negative twist to attack modifiers to more um concealing terrain uh, which is a lot less common on boards than it's, it's a weird balance change that has nothing to do with the individual models, but is more the terrain of the, the table um, because cover is less oppressive to them. Um, yep. So that was one of those big things that we, we were just, just working on it um, from a, a visual standpoint, what's easiest to use and easiest to understand. And then also how does this affect um, gun lines and, and because terrain doesn't, Have as much of an impact on melee crews as it does those that um, pack a bunch of gunpowder in their pockets.
0: Yep, no, that makes sense. It you know, it's funny about the shadow rule. I have the hardest time explaining it to people that have played Malifaux before. If someone has never played Malifaux before makes total sense. But if they play 2E, they're like, wait, what? Wait, what? So yeah, <laughs> that's it, a sign that I think you did the right thing there.
1: Yeah, that is actually a thing that kind of shows up uh, a lot of second edition players getting confused with third edition. Um, one of the biggest kind of hurdles we have uh, designing third edition was making sure that the communication um, is, is for new players and for players that are already in the game. Um, because those are those are the ones that have supported us for the longest time. We want to make sure that they kind of get the extent of the game. But Shadow is just one of those things that you kind of have to go for the, the easy solution that new players understand, because it's a really complicated topic.
0: Yeah, yeah. Getting, I mean, the whole concept of terrain and line of sight and all of that is something that model companies, miniature game designers have been tackling for forever. Um, and, you know, the one thing that was good about GW's approach of true line of sight is it simplified things. I'm really glad you guys didn't do it because I hate it true
1: line of sight so from from a perspective of a game designer, I weirdly think of my job is not to like make the best game possible. it's to make the game that that gets models on the table and that uh, excites people about the model line because to us those are those are what's super important we we love our game, and as a game designer, that is really my kind of forte but if if no one wants to buy the models, then why the the game is (laughs) never going to be played. And modelers love their weird bases and they're changing up things. And true line of sight just cuts that to the ground. You can't really adjust the height of models with true line of sight. And so it's, it's one of those, those game mechanics that is a modeler's nightmare.
0: No, I, I, Really happy you guys didn't go in that direction. Um, so the last thing, and I've heard rumbles about this, but, uh, is gaining grounds going to exist in uh, third edition?
1: Yeah. Gaining grounds is going to exist in third edition. Um, we're starting season one in, uh, the first couple months after release. Hopefully, um, we'll get some playtesting started on that. That's going to do a couple minor things. Um, if we need to make adjustments to schemes and strategies, um, Uh, initially that's where that's going to come in. It's also going to allow us to kind of change up things and, and, um, allow us, uh, a a bit more freedom from what we've seen in the first couple months to going forward, um, adjust minor things. And, uh, we're really excited about it. I can't talk too much into what's going to be in the season of gaining grounds. Um, but I will say that we are, we have some pretty exciting plans that we think will add new aspects to the game and, um, Bring some exciting new changes.
0: Yeah, something to look forward to. I like that. All right. So, the last thing I want to kind of learn from you is uh, you know, we're a couple months now that, you know, uh, a good number of people have been playing the game. Um, you've got podcasts like this one, Schemes of Stones, and uh, the Scoundrels out there that have been talking about the game. you got a lot of people posting, you know, different things about the game. I, I want to know, you know, how does that feel as a designer? Like when, say, you know, Stephen comes on my show and talks about Molly and, you know, you listen to somebody who didn't design it. You designed it and they talk about it. Um, I really would. I've always wondered what it must be like to hear somebody talk about your baby.
1: Yeah. So I, I will say this out loud. I listen to every podcast players put out anything that has malafoe the other side, weird related. Even if you just put it in your description, I'll probably listen. To it. I'm really <laughs> excited about it. And so when I heard you guys talking about Molly uh, last week, two weeks ago or something. And uh, um, I was just really excited because I that was one of those things that um, I had a lot of my hands in in Molly, especially later on. And uh, hearing you guys talk about things that I had never thought of was just so interesting because um, you guys specifically came up how mobile Molly's crew was. And I was like, I know Molly's crew is super mobile, but I a lot of it for me came in the form of like night terrors and summoning night terrors with a forgotten Marshall to kind of push them around and do a lot of things with that. And so when you're like, I never take night terrors, I'm like, Oh no, what about <laughs> night terrors? And uh, so just kind of hearing players talk about different things um, from uh, a more open um, kind of dialogue rather than just forums. We learned so much stuff that we, we never would have thought about. Um, And so I, I only hope that I hear about something. I I never hear about anything that's like here's a game breaking thing that never got brought up. I just like please don't say anything along those lines. And I, I like to think that that didn't come up in that conversation. I don't think anything was was too bad.
0: (laughs) It it didn't, and you know, and Stephen was very. uh open about the fact that you know this is his, his early take too so even though he's gotten 1520 games in with Molly he fully recognizes that you know what he talked about on, on that episode could change six months from now. Um and th- I think that's what's kind of the most exciting uh thing about it. Um I've uh we're gonna be releasing an episode with James Doxy talking about Karis. That uh, was another deep dive. I, I'm and about- I, I was oh man it was so good. I was fascinated because Um, you know, I read, I did my homework, um, on Karis before the episode and he went in directions I never thought about. And I can imagine that, uh, that's only a a small taste of what you went through.
1: Yeah. And it, it it comes from like, uh, a podcast, but also like Karis, for example, I played a game, uh, the first time I had ever played like the current iteration of Karis. I was like, let's see how this goes. And I spent my first turn. I was like what am I supposed to be doing again? And then suddenly it clicked and I was just like, oh yeah, this is all the things I had planned out in my <laughs> design, like idea and head. Let's see how this goes. And it was tons of fun. And it's always like, I really want to hear from players, like, what is the most fun aspect of those crews? And the the Molly example, only because it's kind of fresh on my mind. It was one of those things that, uh, it's interesting to hear if you talk about something or if you don't, because the fading mechanic never was brought up in that conversation. Yeah. And to me, that was one of the, it's the most fun mechanic in her crew. Um, it's definitely what makes any individual turn um, fun and kind of exciting for both players. Um, and so it's, it's just interesting seeing everyone's kind of reactions to it. What's the most powerful thing compared to what's the most fun thing, uh, which are what I'm excited about personally.
0: Yeah, I mean, when when I, you know, read about Molly before I played her, it, the fading thing totally dominated my thought process. And I, I ended up being a little bit more like Steven where, um, you know, fading happened, but it, it wasn't the central piece of her for me. Um, but, uh, and this will we'll wrap this up here, but the, somebody asked me um, after my first couple of games, in fact, I even think I did a podcast about my first game with Molly, what I thought was so cool about, and I'm so glad my first game of Malifaux third edition was with her is my hot takes were, it felt like Molly, even though she played nothing like she did in second edition. And not only that, but she, she played like a master that I'd never played with before. Like it was a totally new experience, but it was still Molly. And that probably was the biggest compliment and brought drove me to record that podcast about my first hot take is that like the fact that I had all of those feelings at the same time after my first game with you know the first master that I tried it was really encouraging
1: yeah absolutely I'll take that as a personal compliment to myself
0: no it it was all you it was all you uh Um,
1: yeah I I, I love Molly so much so uh I personally don't even play Molly but I I just love her
0: mechanics I think she's a lot of fun so yeah, she if I think fun is the right word, man. Fun is definitely the right word. Um all right, so, you know, to wrap up, Matt, um can you just give me give me an idea that if, you know, eight, 6 8 months from now, what would you love to hear everybody talking about to make you feel like um, you know, th- this was a success? Uh
1: I want everyone to talk about a different thing. If I hear every master's name, that's what I'm excited for. Um Nate. I really want people to be like, oh, I, I love uh, Molly or I love Karis or I love uh, Ma-Tucket. I want to hear Ma-Tucket of it. But I I, I I, will consider myself um, truly excited if I can get a couple masters out of each faction and not have people like super power gaming and be like, well, this is the best model and you should always take it. And it's not meant for this in any way. So.
0: You're going to get that, Matt. That's unavoidable. <laughs> Um, it, you know, people, people figure a game out. Um, and it, uh, I, that used to really bother me actually, because, um, and I, this is going to be a, a huge uh, shocker to all my listeners. I'm not good at this game, uh, nor am I good at any game I play. Um, and it, the min maxing, you know, power gamer stuff used to really bother me, but now I, I kind of realize, you know, when you, when you set up a set of rules, and you create something as complicated as Malifaux or any other miniature game, people are going to find, you know, the, the path, you know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to figure the game out. What I think is great, um, is, and you guys did it in second edition and I look forward to seeing it in the third edition is regular changes and gaining grounds. I think are what allow you to, to stop those, um, from dominating the game and turning it into, that's what Malifaux is. Um, So, um, and I think that some of the design choices you guys made, specifically the keyword system, which if you haven't picked up on, I like, um, I I think that is going to help a lot. So, um, but I like that, man. I like that you just want to hear about all kinds of different models and masters. That's very, very cool. All right. So the, um, I want you to know that uh, I'm going to be bugging you again soon, Matt. Um, I really enjoyed this, and I know our listeners um, have loved um, kind of pulling back the curtain. So I hope you, uh, hope you come back, and I'd like to talk Kyle and some of the other people to come on. So uh, can't thank you enough, man. Yeah, absolutely. Love being here. It was a great time. All right. Everybody take care. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate and write a review on this podcast so we can find more people almost as cool as you are. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube by searching for Third Floor Wars. That's T H I R D. We'll catch you next time on the third floor.